2 Samuel chapter 5. You know, people say you can learn a lot about a leader in the pressure moments, when the heat is turned up. You, you see what a man's metal is really made of, what his leadership really is when, when things are hard. But I think we also learn about a lot about a leader when, when things are going well. I think you learn a lot about a leader when you see a man put into a position of authority or you see a man receive a promotion or a raise or an extension. In fact, in the sports world, there's the phrase contract year. And a contract year is a player, an athlete's final year of his contract. And the reason why it's a thing out there is because a lot of times what you'll see is you'll see the, the players ratchet up their, their level of exertion, their level of intensity, their level of performance during a contract year because they know that if they don't perform, that they're not going to get paid as much as they want to get paid when free agency hits or when they, they get an extension from their home club. And so they bring their talent level up. But a lot of times what happens after they get paid and after they get their massive contract that next year, that first year into their contract, their production drops off pretty significantly. Not all the time, but a, a lot of the time it does. And in fact, it's those times that it doesn't happen that, at least for me as a fan of the game, I stand up and take notice. Because there's a guy who wasn't just working hard in order to get paid, he was working hard because that's the type of man he is. He's a man of integrity. He's a strong leader. And a lot of times those are the guys on the team that the rest of the players on the team also look to and want to follow their lead. They want to get behind that guy. When things are going well, when, when everything's lining up, they're still leading the charge. They're still on the front lines. They haven't pulled back. They haven't let up or slowed up in their resolve. This evening we see David finally take the throne as the king of all of Israel. But that doesn't mean for a second that things were going to get easier for him. After a strong start, we're going to see the opposition arises again from the Philistines. And David's leadership is once more going to be put under the microscope. And all of us get to see how David responds now with the, the contract under his belt, so to speak. He's been put in place. This is what he's been promised. This is what he's been waiting for. Saul is gone. Ishbosheth is gone. His rivals within Israel are no more. He is now the anointed king of all Israel. And tonight we get to look and see, okay, David, how are you going to respond? So we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought us in. And the Lord said to you, you shall be the shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David as king over Israel. And David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. As we enter into the text, verse 1 is a pretty amazing scene. You finally have the culmination of everything that, that God had been sovereignly orchestrating, providentially laying out for us. You have all of Israel, not just Judah, but now all of Israel, those that had followed Saul, those that had followed Ishbosheth, and everybody comes down to Hebron, to David. And they come to him, and they come to him as, as an expression of wanting a, a unity again. The fracture was healing, the dispersed were returning, the rebellious were repenting. And they gather to David and notice the language. They say, we are your bone and your flesh. 
We are your bone and your flesh. It's unavoidable for us not to see the parallels between what Israel is expressing to David here and the language that God himself used through the, the, the response of Adam when Adam was brought Eve, the, the language of the marriage covenant. Israel goes to David and they say, you are our bone or we are your bone and flesh. Genesis 22, or 2, 22 through 24 is that passage that speaks of marriage says, in the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So again, what is Israel doing here? They're, they're covenanting with David. They're coming and they're committing fully to David. They're entering into a union with David such the like that they're willing to use the same language that Adam used about his union with Eve. This is an intimacy. This is a, an all in. This isn't a political move. This is a, a, we're completely together with you, David. We're coming back to you. We are returning to you. They're done with the division. They're ready to unite and commit fully to their leader. In fact, they say to him, even recognizing publicly before him, confessing that this is something that they've known for a long time. They said, look, in times past, even under Saul's reign, when he was king over us, it was you, David, who led out and brought in Israel. Saul has killed his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands. And the Lord said to you, David, you shall be shepherd of my people, Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Again, what we see here is Israel repenting, coming back and, and submitting themselves to the reign of David. But more importantly, they were returning to submission to the sovereignty of God. They were done rebelling, at least for the time, against God's direction, against God's plan. Remember, they knew that Ishbosheth was not the right king. In fact, when Abner went to them, remember he goes to the elders of Israel and he says, for a long time now, you elders of Israel, the people under the reign of Ishbosheth, you have wanted David to be king. They knew that it was wrong and now finally they were returning to David and returning to submission to the sovereignty of God. But notice this commitment isn't just a, a one-way street between Israel and David. In verse three, so all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and here King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. See, this was as much a, a religious event as it was a political transition. Israel was returning to the Lord's roadmap for them and, and David was covenanting with them before the Lord. And so at first you see Israel using that strong marriage language and then you hear the, the language of covenanting and then it's all said to have been done before the presence of the Lord. David was reclaiming the throne of Israel as an instrument of divine providence. This was the time that God had been pre preparing David for, for David to step fully into the role that he had been set apart for way back in 1 Samuel 16. You remember Samuel goes to the house of Jesse and he says, where are your sons? And Jesse parades all of them except for David. He says, wait a minute, don't you have another? And he says, well, yeah, but he's out hanging out with the sheep. You don't want him. And he calls him and David comes in and the Lord says, this is him. That moment 
from that moment until now. This is what everything has been moving towards. And now David is there and now all eyes were on David. How was he gonna react now that he had the throne? Verse six, and the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him go up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord of armies was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. So what does David do? How does David respond? Well, one of the first things that he does, one of the first things that he does, as the newly minted king of Israel, is he leads his people in this act of obedience that they long neglected. When Israel took possession of the promised land, they were commanded, they were under a direct authoritative direction and command by God to drive out all of the inhabitants of the land, including the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. In fact, we find out in Genesis 15 verse 21 that Jerusalem was part of the land directly promised to Abraham's offspring, part of the promised land. So all the way back in Genesis 15, God is telling Abraham, your descendants will inhabit the land and they will drive out. And he includes the the Jebusites there. Also in Exodus chapter three, verse eight, a similar promise. God promised to drive them out in Exodus 33, two. In Deuteronomy chapter seven. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 17, the command is actually issued. God commands Israel to destroy them completely. They were part of the, the Canaanites and all the other ites, right? That are listed in the, in the pages of scripture that weren't supposed to be there any longer. But we come to Joshua fifteen sixty three, and we find out that Israel failed to drive out the Jebusites. And so they remained and they lived in Jerusalem alongside of Israel in the midst of Israel from that day forward. You remember the the incident with David and and Goliath. David goes out and he kills the giant with a, a sling and a stone. And then he goes up and he takes the sword from the giant and he cuts off his head. Where does he take the head? To Jerusalem, to the Jebusites. Remember, one of the commentators said it was if David was saying, hey, I'll be right back. And he left the head of Goliath there in Jerusalem to remind the Jebusites that they were not welcome there, that they were persona non grata, that this wasn't their territory, that God wanted them out. And now as David is newly minted as the king over all of Israel, one of the first things that he does is he goes to Jerusalem to drive them out. But aside from fulfilling this biblical command, which I do think was a big part of what drove David's actions there. What else was David after? Why did he set his sights on Jerusalem in particular? Well, two things. Number one, because the Jebusites were still there, still living there after the the promised land was divided up, Jerusalem wasn't assigned to a particular tribe at the time. It was basically neutral territory. 
And so David, as a wise leader, was thinking, okay, I'm not going to think that there's not going to be a tribe out there that's going to think that they've got me in their back pocket because this has been under the, the authority and reign of a pagan people, this city, this territory has. So it's, it's in some ways neutral ground in that essence. But the second thing is, and I think more importantly, and if you've been to Jerusalem, you, you can attest to this as well, Jerusalem was set up on what? On a hill. And so it was an easily defendable city. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons why, besides the sinfulness and the failures of leadership there, but I think that's one of the reasons why they had still remained in Jerusalem throughout all of the rest of Israel's conquests. Jerusalem was no easy place to be, be taken, to be overcome. And so as David was considering, okay, where is my capital going to be? Where am I going to take up residence? Uh, Jerusalem was a natural choice for him. But he goes there and in that Safety and that defensibility is the first thing that the Jebusites boast in when they see David approach. In fact, they say, you're not going to come in here. The blind and the lame. We don't need to even put our, our best soldiers out against you. We'll put out the blind and the lame people and they will be able to defend our city against your attacks. Basically, the Jebusites are essentially saying, we have no concern of you. This is, this is uh, you're, you're, uh, you're nothing to us. It's not going to happen. Well, their arrogance didn't really sit well with David in our text, he says, hey, somebody run up the water shaft and, and go and strike them down. In 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 6, he, in the, the, the parallel account there, 1 Chronicles 11, 6, he, he throws down the gauntlet to his men. He says, hey, the first person in killing the Jebusites is going to become my commander and my chief over my armies. And we learn that it's Joab who's the first one that goes in. See, David has been a bold and decisive leader for quite some time. We've seen that. We covered that with his, his leadership resume last week. We've seen him be a strong leader, a, a godly leader, a decisive leader, an active leader. But what would his response be now? What would his men be able to expect from him? He was king. This was it. He could stay in Hebron if he wanted to. And so I wonder if some of the questions were, would he just kind of maintain the status quo? Was he going to kick up and put his feet up? After all, he'd been running for his life for decades, and now finally, it's no more. No more battle, no more war, no more anything else. What was he going to do? But David didn't sit back like the athlete who gets the extension after his contract year. Instead, he stepped into his new role, ready to charge ahead, to, to hit the ground running. It's point number one for us tonight. We need to emulate him by leading with decisive action. Leading with decisive action. David takes the throne and he meets with the people. He commits to the people. He covenants with them to be their shepherd king. And then he gets to work. He starts moving. He starts leading. He starts acting. He gets out in front of things. So I want to ask us tonight, do you find that you are leading with that same sort of decisive action? Consider some spheres of, of leadership that the Lord may have in your life. Number one, work. Are you actively leading in your job? And you might say, well, I'm not the boss. That doesn't mean you can't lead. Are you setting an example of strong work ethic from others that, for others that you work with? Are you taking the initiative with projects, even when they're not assigned to you? Are you thinking outside the box saying, hey, how, how can we move the ball down the field together? How can we work harder? Are you demonstrating that strong work ethic? Are you encouraging others? Are you helping others that you work with? Or are you viewing them as, as competition and climbing the corporate ladder? 
Leadership doesn't need a, a, a title. This is something that we hopefully are all familiar with, but you don't need the title of boss or the title of number one or the title of supervisor or manager to be a leader. You can lead in your place of work regardless of where you fall in the, the stratosphere there. And so lead with decisive action. Be a godly leader in your workplace by, by setting that example, that strong work ethic. Second, are you leading within the church this way? Are you serving in the church? Every single one of you, 1 Corinthians 12, God has given you a spiritual gift to be used for his glory, for the edification of the saints, for the building up of the body of believers. Are you using those things? You need to be using those things. Are you, are you engaging with other men like we talked about at our, our conference that we just had? Are you actively involved in leading by getting face-to-face -face with other men, getting in their kitchen, so to speak? Encouraging one another, exhorting one another, praying for one another, building one another up, holding one another accountable. Yes, even doing the, the hard work, the uncomfortable work at times of, of confronting other brothers when they're not walking obediently to the word. Are you leading and praying for other brothers? Third, are you leading at home? Are you leading with decisive action at home? I think this is one of the, the areas of weakness for a lot of men. Are you leading in decision making, providing, managing. But more importantly, are you leading spiritually at home? Are you taking the initiative in praying with your loved ones, praying with your family members? Praying for them, praying with them? Are you taking the initiative in, in reading the word together? Setting an example and making sure that you were doing that, that you're making that a priority. Fathers, are you taking the lead at home and discipling your children, making sure that they look at you as the spiritual leader of the household and they look at you and they say, man, I, I, I wanna grow up and be like dad. Are you taking the lead in correcting? You know, Pastor Mike always talks about when dad got up off the couch, right? There should be that at home. Men, we need to, to be that, that authority. John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, wrote this concerning the subject of leading at home. He said, first, concerning the spiritual state of his family, a man ought to be very diligent and cautious, doing his utmost both to increase faith where it has begun and to begin it where it is not. Therefore, he must diligently and frequently bring before his family the things of God from his holy word in accordance with what is suitable for each person and let no man question his authority from the word of God for such a practice. In other words, John, John Bunyan is saying, let no man say, is that really my role? He's saying, yes, biblically, it is your role to lead with decisive action at home, to be a spiritual leader in the home. Man, I've done a, a good deal of, of marriage and family counseling and a recurring theme I've seen is women who wish their men would take a more active role in leading. 
Our wives want husbands who will lead with decisive action. And I understand not all of you are married or that even among those that are, not all of you have believing spouses, but the ones that do, your wife wants you to pray with her. She wants you to encourage her to be reading her Bible. She wants you to read the word with her. She wants you to to make sure you're out the door and, and getting your family in the car and getting to church and making that a priority. She wants you here tonight, which is awesome that you are. And so if if you're doing these things at home, man, awesome, praise God, excel still more. Let's not grow complacent in these things. If you're not, let me encourage you not to be paralyzed by that feeling of being a hypocrite if you start. Better for you to take the initiative and start leading this way than to say, well, if I try to to pray with her or read with her or read with my kids or pray with my kids, they're just going to think I'm a fraud. It's part of God's design that that we as men should be leaders from the initial act of creating Adam and then Eve that he refers back to over and over and over again as as the paradigm in scripture. And his design for us is not to kick back and lead in a position only, but also to, to lead in action, to get out front, to set the example, to set the tone and to beckon those that we lead, follow me. David was doing that. He took the the throne and he got to work. Verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Verse 18, now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? So for David, the honeymoon of, of leadership was pretty much non-existent. He becomes the, the king of all Israel And then it says the Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. There's something in verse 17 that clues us into a a timing element here that's at work that we might not assume based on how chapter five is laid out. In fact, it, it appears that what happens in verse 17 and following actually takes place before David goes to Jerusalem and conquers Jerusalem and drives out the Jebusites. You say, well, why? Well, it says in the text, the Philistines went up to search for David. If David had taken up residence in Jerusalem, they would know where to find him. And then it says that when David learned of it, he went down to the stronghold. Anytime you were going to Jerusalem, what were you doing? You were going up to Jerusalem, not down to Jerusalem. And if David had been in Jerusalem, which was, again, one of the most impregnable cities around, there's no reason why he would leave and flee when the Philistines were gathering. So it looks like what happened is, is the author is rearranging some things here a little bit for us. And, and he's now coming back to what was taking place before what, took, what happened in Jerusalem. And he's saying, when, when David was still in Hebron, anointed as king now, the Philistines learned of it and they set out to, to attack David in Israel. Why? Well, let's get into the mind of the, the Philistines for a moment. These men were intimately acquainted with David, weren't they? It wasn't long ago that David was living with them. It wasn't long ago that David was fighting with them. These men not only knew David, they knew David's mighty men. They knew what kind of reputation David had. And and now that David was the king of all Israel, they knew of his military prowess, his leadership acumen, and that it wouldn't be too long before David had Israel back up and running like a finely tuned war machine. And so the Philistines were thinking to themselves, and not wrongly, 
from a, a worldly perspective, hey, you know what? Let's attack. Let's strike while the iron's hot, while they're still trying to figure things out, while they're still basking in the glow of him becoming the new king, while he still doesn't have his, his military cabinet fully in order yet, maybe. Let's go end his reign early. And so they set out after David, and David, it says, goes down to the stronghold. It's likely that this was one of the strongholds even there in the wilderness of Ziph where he had been fleeing from and running from, where he had taken refuge when Saul was chasing him. It's not exactly expected, is it? Here you have David. He's the king. This is the moment. Everything from 1 Samuel 16 has been leading up to this moment. And then this moment comes and you think this is the grand time of, of Israel's greatest time under the reign of David. And then under Solomon where Israel had never experienced reigns like those before. And we, experience the, we expect the, the glory to come right away. But instead the Philistines show up and David's back in the wilderness hiding again. Man, that's rough. Imagine, put yourself in David's shoes for a moment. What he must have been thinking at that time. But does he throw up his hands in frustration? Does he shake his fist at the Lord and get angry that he's still facing these setbacks? Does he give up? Does he lose heart that now even as the sole king of Israel, he's still on the run and hiding in the wilderness? No. Yeah, he seeks the Lord's guidance. He inquires of the Lord. He says, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? David continues this desperate dependence on God. Even after he had seen the fulfillment of God's promises, he doesn't take the reins and say, okay, God, I've, I've got it from here. Even while on the run once again from the Philistines, he, he doesn't give up. He doesn't forsake his dependence on the Lord or get angry at God for his circumstances. He stays Trusting the Lord. See, David knew the only reason that he was king is because of God's providence. And he knew the only way out of the circumstances that he was facing was by trusting in God's providence and guidance. That's a principle that Saul had abandoned. In fact, in 1 Chronicles 10, 14, 1 Chronicles 10, 14, we find a summary charge of Paul's shortcomings as king over Israel. This is God's ultimate indictment against Saul's reign as king. And here it is, 1 Chronicles 10, 14. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Saul had failed in this regard, failed to remain dependent on the guidance and wisdom of the Lord, but David wasn't going to make the same mistake. David had learned from the mistakes of Saul. And that's a, a, another character trait of a godly leader. It's point number two for us tonight. It's this. We need to lead by learning from the experience of others. Lead by learning from the experience of others. As leaders, we need to be students of the past. We've talked about this actually as one of the main reasons why, in fact, we've talked about it. Paul wrote that it's one of the main reasons why we have the Old Testament that we have. These things have been written down as examples. They've been recorded for your instruction. And then he says, so take heed lest you fall. Well, how are we going to fall? Only if we're not becoming students of the past. Only if we're not learning from the example and the experience of others who went before us. 
But we also need to be students, not just of the biblical leaders, but of other leaders as well. We need to ask what has worked well, what hasn't worked so well. So ask yourselves a couple questions. Number one, who are the leaders who have most influenced your life? Who are the leaders that have most influenced, most impacted your life? What were their strengths? What were their strong points? What, what made them successful? What are those things that you want to emulate as a leader, especially as a, as a godly leader? Second, what were their weaknesses that you want to avoid? What were the things that you saw them? Where did they fail? And, and what can you learn from, from their failures? But not only asking that of, of other leaders who've influenced our lives, but ask yourself second tonight, what are some of the significant leadership decisions you have made in the past? How can you learn from your own past, your own experience in leadership? What are things that went well for you that you wanna make sure that are repetitive in your leadership traits, in your leadership qualities? What didn't work? What are some of your failures? What are the things that the hard lessons that you've personally learned from your own experience that you don't want to forget, that you want to carry forward with you? The other thing to think about as leaders is to recognize that others are watching you and will be learning from you as well. Again, I, I go back to those spheres of life, whether it's work, church, or home. At work, even if, again, even if you're not the top dog, you're not in a position of authority, you're going to have coworkers that are going to watch you, especially if they know that you're a Christian. How are you influencing them? What, what things are you showing them that they can emulate, that they can strive to, to pattern their own leadership after? The other thing that we need to do as we think about leading, learning by leading from the, or leading by learning from the experience of others is, is, Reading, read the biographies of great leaders and, and learn from them. If reading is not your thing, you don't love to sit down with a book, then jump on and get Audible and, and download the audiobooks and, and listen to them that way. Put them on in the car, whatever they, they are, do, do whatever you need to do, but get the, the biographies of great leaders in your mind, especially great godly leaders in your mind great Christian leaders and, and learn from the things that they did well, learn from the things that they're honest enough to say that they didn't do well. David did that. He saw exactly what Saul had done. He saw where it had gotten Saul and he was committed in his heart to learn that he was gonna remain dependent on the Lord, at least to this point, no matter what. Verse 19 the Lord said to David after he inquired of him, he said, go up for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perazim and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Notice David's again, not just inquiring of the Lord, but we've talked about this already numerous times. He's giving God the glory for everything. He said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there and David and his men carried them away. 
you remember the experience in 1 Samuel 30 when all the men are ready to kill him. What does he do? He inquires of the Lord, right? And the Lord says, go to Ziklag or go after the Amalekites and I will deliver them into your hand. David has the same experience here again. He inquires of the Lord. The Lord says, yes, go, go up against the Philistines. God is saying that he would bless his efforts and deliver the Philistines into his hand. And sure enough, he, he does. Just a, a side note where it says there that David and his men carried away the idols of the Philistines. First Chronicles 14, 12 parallel account of the same event. First Chronicles 14, 12 says, they left their gods there and David gave command and they were burned. And so this isn't saying that David and Israel took the Philistine gods back to, to put them like in their storehouses or anything. This is where, again, remembering that we've got parallel accounts of the, the same story here helps us. Scripture helps interpret scripture here. So when it says they carried them away, it was just a, a colloquial exp expression or a way of, of just summarizing that they had destroyed them. We learned from First Chronicles chapter 14 that they actually burned them. They did destroy them. But David goes out and he beats the Philistines. So finally we think, okay, fine. Now, David, things are going to settle down. Now it's, you're, you're all good, David. You dealt the Philistines a blow. They came out and, and bowed up against you and you stood up and you defeated them. Now you're going to be able to kick back and relax, but not so fast, right? The Philistines, what do they do? They show up again. In fact, in the same place, same valley, they, they draw up in the same exact place to do battle again. Who knows? Maybe they thought David would still be basking in the glory of his previous victory over them. He wouldn't be expecting it. I mean, it is, it seems, seems pretty ridiculous, so yeah, I would be with them thinking that, yeah, he's not going to expect us to come back right after he's just defeated us. But their leader said, you know what, let's go back. We're going to go back. We're going to attack them again. Whatever their reasoning, they were irritatingly persistent. Now, if I'm David, my first thought is, okay, same song, what? Different verse, right? Actually, same song, same verse, because they show up in the same spot. And they're ready to do battle again. So if I'm David, I'm thinking, wait a minute, we've just dealt with you guys. And so my first response is going to be, okay, guys, back at it. Let's go for the two-game sweep, right? Charge back out on out there. This is the same enemy. We don't need a different game plan. Just, just go get them. You, you, you can do it. You've got the confidence. I mean, after all, we're not talking months or, or, or even weeks. We're talking a matter probably of, of days here, and they're back again. But again, David had learned from past mistakes. He learned from the danger of leaving God out of the decision-making process. So once more, he turned and sought the Lord's guidance before acting. Verse 22, the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim and David inquired of the Lord. He said this time, what? You shall not go up. As you read that, you can hear the sound of the emergency brakes being yanked by his men who've already started suiting up and, and they're ready to go out to battle. And then David says, hold on a minute. Again, not years or months, but days, days. And now God's plan has changed. His strategy had changed. It would make all the sense in the world to assume that God was going to respond the same way that he already had responded, that he was going to deliver them the same way that he had delivered them previously. But that's not what happens. This time David heard, you shall not go up. See, I firmly believe that if, if David had not sought the Lord and Israel had gone out the same way they had gone out previously, assuming that God was going to operate the same way that he had just days before, that they would have been defeated and humiliated on the battlefield in front of the Philistines. But as it was, David was willing to be persistent in seeking the Lord because he had a, a keen understanding of God's providence. 
His providential control over everything. Men, as godly leaders, we need a third and finally tonight, lead with an eye towards God's sovereignty. Lead with an eye towards God's sovereignty. Yes, we need to be men of decisive action like we talked about in point number one, but that decisive action needs to be carried out under the umbrella of God's sovereignty and submitting to God's sovereignty. God is sovereign, amen? Amen. Yes, that's a proposition all of us would get behind, hopefully, and nod our heads and agree with. And we would all, at least, I think, agree that we, at least intellectually, agree that we lead under the sovereign authority of God as well. But I wonder, do we lead in a way that demonstrates that we are practically conscious of his sovereignty on that daily basis? couple questions. Number one, do you assume outcomes based on experience without seeking the Lord's guidance? If you do, you're not leading with an eye towards the sovereignty of God. You might say, well, I've done this a thousand times. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We, we still need to be seeking God's will, seeking God's direction. Or we might say, well, I, I, I just did this yesterday just like David had just gone out against the Philistines. Or we might say, well, I know what I'm doing, so I'm not worried about the outcome. Do you assume outcomes based on experience without seeking the Lord's guidance? Second, do you realize that though God is immutable, he's unchangeable, he can choose to respond and act in different ways, even given similar circumstances? He is immutable. He is unchangeable. But that doesn't mean that he's always going to respond to you the same way that he has before. He may deliver in a different way. He may bring resolution to a problem or a conflict in a different way. He may bring relief to pain and suffering in a different way. Or he may say, not right now. Third, do you consider that this unpredictable element of God's sovereignty is intended to inspire greater dependence and devotion from us. It's in, intended to inspire greater dependence and devotion from us. We need to confess, God, your ways are not my ways. They're higher than mine. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. God does not conform to our will. It's our job to conform our will to his will and to seek his will, and to be looking for his will. I mean, just think for a moment of all of the different variables that go into every day, every day, and of God's sovereign control over every single one of those. Remind yourself, think about all the things that have to go right, even for the simplest of outcomes to be secured. We talked about it last week, that idea of, of breathing, right? All of the different biological variables that have to take place and who sustains that? Christ sustains that. We need him and we can't assume that we know, okay, God, you've always done it this way or I've always done it this way. Therefore, I don't need to worry about what your will is or seeking your will on this. I can assume that I know the outcome. We need to lead with an eye towards his sovereignty, acknowledging that he is the one in providential control, acknowledging that, Yes, he it may respond the same way that he has before, but it may be different. And so we need to be making sure that we're putting ourselves in the way of his revealed will. 
verse 23, God says, instead of going up, he says, go around to their rear and come up against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. Was the outcome the same? Yes, the Philistines were defeated, right? Yes, the outcome was the same. Could God have delivered in the same way that he had done previously? Yes, he could have said, go out, David, and I will deliver them into your hands. They could have drawn up in the same spots. They could have gone and stepped into the same muddy footprints that they had left on the battlefield the day before. They could have called out the men that they got in the skirmish with last time that escaped their grasp. And then like, that guy's mine. I had him last time. God could have operated that way, but he didn't. He didn't because he was teaching David something. He was teaching David an important lesson about his new role as king of Israel. He was teaching David that David was still a man under divine authority, under divine authority of the ultimate sovereign king of Israel. I think this is significant here because you remember what happened back in 1 Samuel chapter eight when Israel went to to Samuel the first time and they said, we want a king. And Samuel went to God and God said, or Samuel said to God, you know, woe is me, they're rejecting me. And what did God say? He said, no, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me from being king over them. And Samuel's intentional usage, and it appears again, again here when Israel covenants with David of the word prince over Israel. Israel has one true sovereign king and that's God Almighty. And I think God was reminding David of that here. And I think God was using David's humble dependence on him, not just to remind David, but to remind all of the rest of Israel and David's mighty men who ultimately was the the true and rightful sovereign over Israel, that they were dependent on him for everything. It's undeniable in the text. When you hear the sound of marching in the top of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. In fact, in our DBR recently, we saw something similar with Hezekiah, didn't we? The Assyrians drew up for for battle and they're calling out and they're trying to convince the Israelites, don't trust in your God. Your God is worthless. He can't stop you from, from us. Look how powerful and mighty we are. And what does Hezekiah do? Hezekiah prays. And the Lord responded, it said, and send out the angel of the Lord to kill 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. See, these were moments of God displaying his sovereignty, making it unavoidably clear that he is in control, that he is sovereign, and that Israel is completely dependent upon him. David would later write, write in Psalm 33, Verse 16 and following, David would write this. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. 
Men, we don't have horses or chariots. And I imagine most of you aren't tempted to trust in an army. But all of us have been put in a position to lead just like David was. Our sphere of influence may be far smaller than his, but our call to lead is the same as the call that he had to lead. To lead in the same way that he did. To do that, we need to forsake a confidence in ourselves, in our winsomeness. We need to forsake a a confidence in our intelligence, in our ability to command a room. And we need to, to be men who are leading with an eye towards God's sovereign providence. And so yes, David enters this role that the Lord had promised him so long ago and now provided for him. And as he entered, he didn't do so passively, thinking that he had finally arrived putting his feet up, so to speak, and kicking back. No, David hit the ground running and he led with decisive action. He led while learning from the experience of others, especially the experience of Saul that he had witnessed firsthand. And I think most importantly, he led with an eye towards the sovereignty of God. So whatever your sphere of influence, gentlemen, these are the traits that should mark you as a godly leader. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for these examples that we have in your word. We are thankful for the way that David led. We pray that we would lead the same way, God. That we would be men of decisive action for you. That we would lead actively in a way that leads toward you. God, that we would be men that that lead our homes well. That we would have godly families, Lord. I know some of that is outside of our control, but that as men of God, that we would do everything within our control to be to be bringing that end about. Lord, I pray that we would lead well in the church, that we would lead well and actively in in our work as well. God, I, I pray that we would learn from the other godly leaders around us, from their triumphs and from their trials. God, that you would give us the, the wisdom to be able to discern what we should be emulating and what we should be avoiding. And God, I pray most of all that we would lead as men who always seek your will, who always look for your guidance, your wisdom, your providential direction as we move forward. I pray that we would lead this way, God, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.